0: We're going to look now at 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, the program says verses 24 through 34. We're actually going to start at verse 20. This is a last minute edition. So again, 1 Corinthians verses 20 through 34. This is the word of God and it's eternally true. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's supper. For in your eating, one, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and to drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this as a memorial of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats, this, eats the bread uh, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if, we had judged, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are discipl- disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together uh, to eat, wait for one another. If one is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right. so for a sermon titled, What the Lord Does for Us in the Supper, this might be kind of a strange text, uh, because the only thing that the Lord seems to be doing in this text is judging the Corinthians. Um, But I think by extension, ironically, a passage illustrating curses being poured out on wicked participants, unworthy participation in the supper, we can reason by extension that there are inherent blessings for those who participate in the supper worthily. And that's because the Lord's Supper really does something. That's my underlying thesis for this message. So I want to examine first the structure of this passage, and then we'll draw out two points. Evidently, there's a great deal of chaos in Corinthians. If you've ever read Corinthians, you get that impression. And then we saw in our New Testament reading that there was idolatry of a type that was similar to the idolatry of the Israelites in the wilderness with the golden calf. And then in chapter 11, our text for this morning... We see that that people are getting drunk, people are hogging the food at the, the Lord's table. And then in verses 20 through 22, the Apostle Paul says that given these wicked things that they're doing, they're not truly taking the Lord's Supper. And then in verses 23 through 26, he gives the proper institution and order for the supper. And then he explains that if it's done rightly, the sharing of the benefits, that, that there is a sharing in the benefits of the Lord's sacrifice of the cross on the cross. And then that's the tacit blessing that I'm kind of going to allude to later. But, but that it's also uh, a proper proclamation of the Lord's death when it's celebrated in a worthy manner. But on the contrary, in verses 27 through 30, he explains that when it's done wrongly, it only amounts to a sharing of the guilt of Jesus's death, not the benefits. And it also amounts to harsh judgments from the Lord, including some people getting sick and some people dying. And then in verses 34 through, 31 through 34, uh, he provides the remedy. So he, there he exhorts the people to repent. And he provides the proper conduct that they should imbibe at the supper. So with that, I want to provide a short overview of the doctrine of the Lord's supper. So first of all, the devil is shrewd. And he spends his time going after the most powerful and effective things in the faith. The things that truly bless and help the saints. And therefore, from the beginning, he's attempted to muddy the waters surrounding communion with errors and then later superstitions in order to corrupt and destroy this glorious gift from the Lord. Over time in the West, the Roman Catholic Church slowly changed the practice. They stopped giving wine to churchgoers, for example, in the medieval times. And then they also invented the idea that the Lord itself is a re sacrifice of Jesus. They used Aristotelian metaphysical categories and got, I would say, a little too precise about when describing something in the Bible. The Bible uses much more vague language to describe. Then the Lutherans, of course, came along in the Reformation, and they moved away from the abominable sacrifice language, which is good, but they kept those overly precise uh, Aristotelian categories. And then after that, further into the Reformation, we've got Ulrich Zwingli coming along, And he, uh, in an effort to sort of move away from all these eccentricities, taught that the supper was just a mere memorial and that the Passover meal, it was like the Passover meal of the Old Testament, right? So it says to eat the the, uh, bitter herb of affliction, right? You're not literally eating something related to the original Passover, it's a memorial, it's a memory of the original Passover. And so is the supper, which is what he he would say, there's nothing spiritual or blessed to it, it's just a remembrance. Well, Calvin came along and contrast he wanted to preserve, I think, I'm going to use the word spookiness, the actual spiritual effects of the supper, right? And this is something that the church had pretty much always maintained, that there was real blessings, real spiritual benefit from, taking, from partaking in the supper. But without the superstition, right, and the overly metaphysically precise language that had come before. So Calvin taught that uh, Christ remains in heaven, i.e., he does not come down that the way that the Lutherans and the Catholics say that he does. And instead, we commune with him by ascending to him rather than him descending to us, and that the supper is a means to that end. And then furthermore, he taught that the bread and the wine in the supper are signs used by God to communicate the promises which they represent. And I think Calvin was right, and, and his views are going to inform mine as we go through this. So then, why did I decide to preach this message to us? Well, I would say that we, as uh, modern people, Christians living in the West, um, we swim in the waters of uh, naturalism. And, and so our assumptions, we're very much influenced by this, even if we don't realize it. We assume, we don't think about spiritual blessings accruing to us. We think rather in terms of, well, natural, everyday kinds of things. And this naturalism, I think, causes people to go down... Uh, two different paths so and in response to it. One is to embrace it, right? And, and that's to sort of neglect the spiritual aspect. And then the other side is to kind of overemphasize, right? And that, go, that goes into Charismania or, or Rome or the East, talking about more like the mystical kind of side, or just outright paganism. So in the context of the Lord's Supper, these two responses to naturalism that occur, these two reactions to naturalism, um, in in the context of the supper, one approaches that sort of Zwinglian mere memorialism. So this is a total uh, neglect of any spiritual or mystical aspects of the supper. And this is the view you'll probably find in most broadly evangelical churches today. But the other route, obviously, similar to just going to the Rome, they'll go to the Roman Catholic or Eastern or even Lutheran views of the supper to kind of over-spiritualize what happens. So I want to argue for for a view that provides sort of a happy, Uh, I would say, biblical median between the two. It doesn't go headlong into the over-spiritualizing errors, uh, but nor does it go into deny the spiritual slash experimental component of the supper. So, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament that confers blessings through the Holy Spirit to the Christian when the word of God is present. That's how I define the Lord's Supper. Well, what is a sacrament? I use that word there. Augustine, I think, has probably the most helpful definition of history that I've heard. A sacrament is a visible form of invisible grace. The Lord's Supper as a sacrament means that it nourishes us and assures us of our continued participation in our union with Christ. So with that lengthy background in mind, I want to draw two points from our text this morning. First, given its importance, there are serious dangers for not rightly participating in the supper. And then second, the Lord graciously blesses us through the supper. All right, so point one, there are dangers for not rightly participating in the supper. I want to start off with the definition of a covenant, because I'll be talking about covenants. A covenant is a solemn bond, solemnly administered with, between two or more persons with attendant blessings and curses. I'll give that one more time. A covenant is a solemn bond, sovereignly administered between two or more persons with attendant blessings and curses. We got a vivid picture this morning from our reading from Deuteronomy, 28 of what those blessings and curses can look like. Um, Clearly, covenants, taking that chapter seriously, is not something to be taken lightly as a subject. So, throughout the Bible, covenants, when they're made or renewed, are accompanied by a feast, which is why when we renew our covenant with God every Sunday, our service would feel incomplete without that meal. It's part of our renewal of covenant with God. So, at the supper slash feast prescribed by Jesus on the night of his death, we both commune vertically with our Lord and horizontally with our neighbor, experiencing that bodily unity together in Christ. And in this sacred rite, uh, it it, excuse me, it is a sacred rite. And with all sacred actions that God prescribes, it's incredibly important to carefully keep it precisely as it was prescribed. So think about Leviticus, right? God will say to Aaron, do this. And then Aaron it lays out in detail what he wants Aaron to do. Then Aaron does it and it lays out in detail what Aaron did, even though we just heard what that was. It seems like extraneous detail. Why that repetition? Well, God is, is tacitly, I think, teaching us the importance of listening and obeying his commands precisely. For example, the Hebrew word for obey means to listen or to hear. Um, and so God goes, uh, uh, excuse me, so God goes off his way to show that they had listened to him, that Aaron had listened to him or whoever, by laying out the, obe- the obedience that they followed in meticulous detail. So think about how mad God got towards Moses when Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to it, right? It's the same kind of thing. God's instructions must be followed with precision, especially when it regards holy things. And that's where we see that repetition is in the context of, of holy things. So the Apostle Paul, earlier in chapter 11, and a part we didn't read this morning, commends the Corinthians for firmly holding to the traditions that he had delivered to them. So they had clearly kept some aspects of the tradition, right, correctly, but clearly not all of them. Um, and that's our section, is the ways that they were not keeping the tradition correctly. Specifically, the problem in Corinth is that they are not doing it as it was prescribed. So let's, let's look back at our text here and see the ways that they fell short of keeping it. So starting with verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or, to, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall, excuse me, shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and we know the rest. So further down in verse 27, he continues. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if he eats, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not rightly, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason many among you are sick and weak, and a number sleep. So what does this say to us in this church? Right? It would be very hard for someone to get drunk on the thimble full of wine and uh, If that tray was coming down the aisle and someone ate all the bread on it, it's hard to imagine that happening. But in the Lord's Supper in Paul's day was accompanied by what Jude calls the agape feast or love feast. Um, And so we don't really know what that looked like, but clearly part of that feast where the words of institution were given and and bread and wine were taken, but it was accompanied by a a broader feast. Well, I would say we have something that's in the spirit of that with our weekly, almost weekly potlucks. Um, These are our love feasts. So clearly, ours are not the same, but we should still take some of Paul's warnings here to heart. For example, if you're going through the line and you see something really yummy that you know a lot of people are going to like, let's just say bacon, you should leave a, take a small enough portion that people after you are going to be able to have some. Um, that would be one example. Or husbands. You know, remember to praise and encourage your wives for all the hard work that they put into this feast. Let them know how thankful you are for it because we do not... You know, we, don't want, we do these feasts gloriously often enough that it would be easy to take for granted the amount of work that they take. And wives, similar sort of injunction, see that no root of bitterness springs up in your heart. Um, if you're overextending yourself, just buy a pizza or something pre-made on a given week. And husbands, help your wives by giving them that occasional easy button. Or by caring for the kids while she prepares the food on Saturday. Let's really lean into the love part of our love feasts. Um... So we would think of our love feats as sort of an extension of the service. I mean, we we have our table fellowship at the Lord's table here, and then we move and we continue to have our fellowship at the table out there. So it really is, I'd say, connected somewhat in the way we do things. Um, And so remember that communing at the supper is not just about the Lord, but it's also about our neighbor. uh, Because he is a member of that same body that we are participating in. And the Lord's Supper unites us as brothers in Christ, binding us together every week. And it was violating this sacred reality in Corinth that led to the Lord's judgment. So now we're going to look more closely at that. So one of the things that the Paul exhorts the Corinthians to do is to discern the Lord's body. Let's read that verse again. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, uh, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks... Uh, excuse me, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not discern the body rightly. So this idea of discerning or judging might be in your translation, the body of the Lord rightly. This verse has obviously been used by Roman Catholics and also Lutherans to mean that we're somehow to metaphysically and consciously, uh, you know, be aware of how the bread literally is the Lord in some mystical sense, right? That's how they mean it. However, with this view, though it's common, you probably hear it a lot, if you just googled this verse, clearly it does not sufficiently take the surrounding verses into account and the overall context of this. So, for example, if we look back at that verse that we had for our New Testament reading, verse uh, chapter 10, verses 16 through 17, um, and this is something we obviously, you'll re- recognize, we repeat this in our liturgy every week, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the body of Christ, and is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Uh, since we are one bread, Uh, We who are many are one body, we all partake of one loaf. So the sharing in this body here means the sharing of the body of Christ, right? And the one loaf represents that whole entire body, sharing the body. Then, if we look at the chapter after our section, chapter 12, the word body of the Lord is spoken of this way. And and it's a lot in that chapter. I just pulled one example, but this theme just continues on in chapter 12 without breaking. So, this this is verse 20 I'm going to read from chapter 12. But now there are many members, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, "I have no need of you." And again, the head to the feet, "I have no need of you." So again, both the individual parts of the body, right, multiple parts, uh, and the unity of the body, namely it being Christ's body, are being emphasized here as well, just as it was back with the one loaf image. So going back to the verse at hand, with that context in view, we can clearly see that the idea in the sermon, in, in our sermon text as well. So. Uh, verse 29 for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body right so how are we how are they how are they eating and drinking in an unworthy manner well by getting drunk right and being stingy with the food how is that not discerning the Lord's body well they were not treating their brothers well who are part of the Lord's body and that was tantamount to not discerning that it is the Lord's body So, just as God says in the Old Testament that Israel is the apple of his eye, right? And if someone pokes God's eye, he's going to get mad because he so closely identifies with his people. And so it is in Corinth. For this reason, many are sick, or excuse me, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Do not mess with the Lord's body. Remember, when Jesus confronted Paul on the road to Damascus, he didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the people of God? No, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Or consider Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats. In so much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. So this is one of the reasons why we should invite our baptized children to the table. For indeed, they may not be able to achieve somehow to a metaphysical awareness, but they can, uh, but being literally the, uh, excuse me, or being literally the Lord in some sense, but rather, when your son sees the plate coming down the aisle, and the, and the piece of bread and, people, and baptized people eating that bread and it comes to him, he can rightly discern the Lord's body and say, well, am I not a part of this body? Can I not eat of this bread? So naturally, he gets the sense in which he discerns the Lord's body that he is a part of. Um, so what about examining ourselves? What, what about that in this context? Well, let's look at that verse again. So 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 27. Therefore, whoever, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat the bread and to drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks, judge unto himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason many among you are weak and sick and number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along, along with the world. So with the broader body context in view, it is clear that judging oneself is not morbid introspection. Right? This is the other, I think, error that people fall into with this. For indeed, if we really examine ourselves in the light of God's revelation, we would come up, we come up short. That's the obvious answer to that. And we would feel unworthy to come to the meal. Now, the examination here is related to the context. Namely, are you partaking of the feast in an unworthy manner? That's the examination. So when we judge ourselves so that we're not judged, right? That's what he says to do, judge yourselves in this manner so that you're not judged." Well remember last uh, Sunday when I quoted this verse, this very verse, and uh, I was saying that repentance is speaking the same thing as God, right? It's a pure word. Well, when he tells them not to well, he tells them to, excuse me, when he tells them to judge themselves regarding their conduct at the supper now, so that they don't have to face God's judgment then, through sickness and death, or in the final day of judgment. That's what it means to examine yourself and judge yourself so that you're not judged. Repentance means turning from sin, right? But it also means turning towards righteousness, doing what is correct. And Paul then, of course, in that section in verse 33, turns to explain to them what they ought to do instead of what they had been doing. So verse 33. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. There it is again. And the remaining matters I'll arrange when I come. So as you can see, the way they were coming together was not for the Lord's Supper. Right. That's what he said in the beginning of the section, but it was rather for judgment. It should have been a blessed supper, but instead they made it a mockery, a mockery of it by their unloving actions towards one another. So I see three types of judgment in this text. We just looked at judging yourself. Right. So that you're not judged. The next one I want us to look at is God's judgment. I want to look a little more closely at that. And then after that, I actually want to look at the judgment of elders, which I think is important. It's not in this text, but it's something we should talk about. So, the Lord is judging the Corinthians, and therefore many of them are weak and sick and even dead. Right? God judged Corinth by cursing some with sickness and death. And God is not trifled with. That's what we learn from that. When sinners handle holy things frivolously, they need to tread lightly. So the question is, do people today get sick, and die, excuse me, from not participating rightly? Or is this just like a first century thing? Well, I would say both. On one hand, the first century, you know, when, because God is just doing a new thing, it's more likely he makes examples of wickedness through immediate judgment. So back in like Uzzah touching the Ark of the Covenant, that was about to be a new thing. It was about to be the temple being built. And God made an example by killing Uzzah because he touched the Ark when he was trying to steady it because they put it on the back of a cow and they're supposed to carry it on their shoulders, right? So these things are given as examples that we might look back on them and take heed now and see the severity of sins now um, that were exemplified by God's judgment. But he still does not dole out physical judgments, but he still does dole out physical judgments today. We just don't have an inspired witness to tell us when he's doing that, right? Uh, he, if we, we, we couldn't quite figure out the cause and effect all of the pieces but we can still see God's hand working in the world because we're not deists right we believe that God is involved both in our lives and the world for example on one cold day in Minneapolis back in 2011 a tornado very rare occurrence on a cold day struck a local ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church knocking down its steeple and it also struck and damaged the convention center where the ELCA was having a vote to accept gay clergy so though we don't have a prophetic witness to confirm that that this incident, but we, we can safely say that God was casting his vote that, that day. All right, so we've looked at judging ourselves, that we're not judged. We've looked at God's judgments uh, but was, uh, and what those look like. So now let's look at the judgment of elders. So they're not mentioned in this text, but they are an important part of the Lord's Supper and the idea of fencing the table. In the Old Testament, when Israel was in the wilderness... God had the tribes of the wilderness camp around the tabernacle, right? And in between the tribes and the tabernacle was the tribe of the Levites. We might think that this is so that God's people don't go in and mess with the tabernacle. And I think that is part of it. Having the Levites there as a barrier. But I also think it was to protect the people of God from God breaking out in judgment. And so it is today. Though we don't have priests, we have elders. And they fence the table. They protect the sanctity of the table to both protect God's glory, but also protect us from God's wrath keeping back notoriously wicked people from the table or keeping order and that sort of thing, etc. So I was way too long in the faith before I realized that the term excommunicated literally means to not commune with, right? That, but that's what it means, right? To excommunicate means to cut off from the table. Jesus in Matthew 18 gave us the procedure for this process. If your brother's in sin, you take it to him personally, like we were exhorted to do in Psalm 12 last week. And then if he doesn't receive it, bring another with you and then eventually bring him before the church to be cut off. So one of the things that the elders do is rule in the cases of excommunication. And I didn't know about that after the service when I prepared this. The Lord did, obviously. So if a person is in unrepented sin or apostatizes, it is the elders' responsibility to handle that and to formally bring it before the church to cut off the person, right? Jesus talks about. Another thing that our elders do from time to time is to bar someone from the table for a limited time as a solemn warning to repent from a severe pattern of sinful behavior. So in 1 Corinthians 5, we have an example of a man who's with his father's wife, and Paul instructs them to not even eat with such a one. And I think that that principally means not to eat the Lord's supper with him. And then Paul, what does he do? He gives him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his soul might be saved on the day of Christ Jesus. The desired goal with any of these forms of discipline is not punitive, but rather to hopefully restore a brother or sister, that his soul might be saved in the last day, in spite of a, in spite of being cut off for a season, he repents and returns like the prodigal son. That's the hope. So, with that, we've seen the dangers of communing, right? Some have sick, some are weak, some have died. Should we abstain from the Lord's supper then, that we might accidentally practice it in a way that's unworthy? No, because that would be tantamount to excommunicating ourselves. We have no right to bar ourselves from the table. This is exclusively the purview of the elders of the church. We are not allowed to do that for ourselves. We instead are commanded to come to the table. And therefore, we need to trust our elder, elders' good rule in the church and come, even if we feel unworthy of coming. And by all means, repent, of course, right? If you're, if you're convicted by a sin because you're coming to the Lord's table, repent. But uh, this table has been gloriously prepared for repentant sinners. So Come. Receive the blessings of the supper, for it is precisely for repentant sinners. So, now we'll look at what those blessings are. Point two, the blessings of the supper, what the Lord does for us in it. All right, so we've examined the judgments related to the supper. Now let's see what blessings we are to expect to receive from our Lord Jesus Christ in his supper. We've talked about how true and terrifying the judgments are from the Lord that come down on those participating unworthily. On the flip side, let's look at his wonderful blessings to those who participate worthily. Um, I would, uh, but before we jump into those blessings, I want to look at three ways we are to participate worthily. What does that look like? Well, these wonderful blessings are to be received by faith, through the Spirit, and when the Word of God is also present. Those are the three ways I'm describing that we participate worthily is by those means. So first... They are to be received by faith. We cannot participate in the supper and receive anything if we're doubting or not believing at all. Just as we saw in James, he's a double-minded man, right? He's unstable in all his ways. The man who doubts, prays and doubts. Similarly, if we come to the supper doubting, we can expect the same response from the Lord that he has for us if we doubt and pray. Secondly, the sacraments are a means of unifying the divine and the earthly. So we are incorporated into Christ by his Holy Spirit, or by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is the Holy Spirit's discretion to, re- to, to uh, receive any blessing. It's at his discretion to give us those blessings. As we see his actions in creation, the spirits, he works, he forms, he fills, and he does what needs to be done. He also, you know, fills saints, Old Testament people, giving them abilities or fills us in the New Testament as a promise. But similarly, he is the power behind the efficacy of the sacraments. We, as mere men, cannot somehow make the sacraments work. It entirely depends on the sovereign actions of the Holy Spirit. And he is entirely free in his operation through the sacraments. He is not in any way constrained by human action or will. So the blessings of the sacraments are not like a vending machine, right? They can't be received. That's kind of how the Roman Catholic Church viewed them. They can't be received automatically. Rather, they are distributed by the discretion of the Holy Spirit. For it is by his power alone that our hearts are pierced, our affections are moved, and our souls are open for the sacraments to enter in. Therefore, apart from the Spirit, as Calvin says, the sacraments are like the splendor of the sun shining on blind eyes, or a voice sounding in deaf ears. In other words, they're no effect. Thirdly, there is no blessing to be found in the sacraments without the word. It is, after all, the word and sacrament that we speak of uh, for our services. That's the service of the word and sacrament. Sacraments, apart from the word, are like a notice that a king posts up on a castle wall with the king's official seal prominently displayed and no message. They have no efficacy at all. And and so we might say, well, okay, there has to be word in sacrament. Is this like word like in the magical incantational sense of the you know, Roman Catholic Church muttering it over the host? No, no, it's not like that. Rather, it's the word clearly proclaimed by a minister in order to lead his people by the hand wherever the signs Uh, Leads and directs, signs being the signs, in this case, of bread and wine. All right, so with those important distinctions out of the way, let us bask in the glorious blessings given to us each week in the supper. So first of all, where does it say that we're blessed in the supper? Well, I would say one place was in our New Testament reading. The cup, by extension the bread, is a cup of blessing. And we, by participating, partake in its blessing for us. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, starting with verse 16 this, Again, is that part we say in our liturgy? Is not the cup of blessing, which we bless, sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the cup, the bread, which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ? We are truly blessed by this cup of blessing. So, one blessing is that the Lord gives us a tangible sign to aid in our weakness, and the tangible sign being bread and wine. So, in this supper, the Lord has stooped to our level; He has given us a visible physical sign of a truly communicated, invisible spiritual reality. We are weak and given our weakness, we cannot receive him fully by trust in the word alone because of our weak frame. God has graciously provided us with a visible symbol in addition to his word. This is the, the sign of bread and wine. And it is in these that he signifies all of his promises In consuming the bread and wine, God both confirms and fortifies us by delivering delivering us from all our doubts and uncertainties by a tangible, physical sign. Therefore, it increases our faith. Through receiving this physical, tangible sign of bread and wine, we can see that we are in Christ, that we are part of his body because we have received of him in the manner that he has chosen to signify to us by this sign. And furthermore, through the benefits of consuming bread and wine, the Christian participates anew in the benefits spiritually granted to him in Christ. So just as bread nourishes and sustains us and keeps life in our body, so Christ's body is the only food to invigorate and enliven our soul. Similarly, in taking the wine and reflecting on the wine's benefits to the body, we realize that those benefits are also spiritually imparted by Christ's blood. Namely, it nourishes us, it refreshes us, strengthens us, it gladdens our heart. That's what Christ's blood does for us in the supper. Calvin helpfully says this, For as the life into which he has begotten us again is spiritual, so must be the food. In order to preserve and strengthen us, be spiritual also. The food be spiritual also. I'll read that again. For as the life which God has begotten us again is spiritual, so must be the food. In order to preserve and strengthen us be spiritual also. So furthermore, the supper is the Lord's prescribed means of receiving him. When we eat the bread, when we drink the wine, we truly receive the whole Christ as a gift. That is the blessing of this feast. But not only that, we receive all that he has attained for us in his death, burial, and resurrection afresh. Therefore, what flows to us is righteousness, forgiveness, and sanctification from the supper. The supper also draws us back to contemplate the precise moment of our justific- when our justification was secured. It draws us to the cross of Jesus and to the resurrection. And it confirms to us that whatever is bad in us, the Lord nevertheless recognizes and accepts us as righteous. In ourselves, we're devoid of all good. The only thing we can procure on our own is death. Nevertheless, the supper is a testimony that, having been made partakers in the death and passion of Jesus Christ, that we have been. That we have been granted everything we are deficient of in him. And if you permit me, these last two reasons are subjective. But I, I think I'm not alone in this feeling. So first, the service doesn't feel complete without the Lord's Supper. I don't know if you feel this too, but when I go to other churches and then the service just ends and there's no Lord's Supper, it feels like something is missing. Um, And because at that point, we've already received, you know, the Lord's word in a variety of means, the call to worship, you know, through, in our case, the confession, the sermon. It just seems right to then receive him in a physical way through the prescribed means of bread and wine. And second, which I would connect with that, Throughout the week, if I miss church, I feel it. And it's not just because of the Lord's Supper, right? It's Word and Sacrament. But throughout the week, it feels as though I'm missing something when I miss church, when I miss the Word, when I miss the Lord's Supper, when I miss the sweetness of fellowship. Something ineffable is missing from me that week. Something that is that a naturalist couldn't point to. Something a little spooky. All right, well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the supper. We thank you for what it assures us of, what it communicates to us, what it blesses us with. And uh, we thank you most of all for your son who provided us that supper. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.